Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends, welcome back. This week, our guest is Dr. Jackie Dillon, who is an activist, trainer, writer, and speaker specializing in hearing voices, disassociation, trauma, abuse, and recovery. She is the chair of the Hearing Voices Network in England and a key figure in the international hearing voices movement. Her survival of childhood abuse and subsequent experiences of using psychiatric services inform her work. She is an outspoken advocate and campaigner for trauma-informed approaches to madness and distress. Jackie is a part of a coll- is part of a collective voice demanding a radical shift in the way we understand and respond to experiences currently defi- defined as psychiatric illnesses. In this episode, Jackie talks about her experience with hearing voices, her relationship to the voices, and the power of community and support in aiding her healing and the healing of many across the world. I think this can be a huge turning point for those listening who are not too knowledgeable with the phenomenon of hear voices and destigmatize the experience to a certain extent. Um, yeah, and I think you'll just gravitate towards Jackie, who is a really inspiring human and a guest that I'd wanted on for quite a long time. Thanks to Jackie for her courageous work, her time for chatting with us and to you for listening. Until next time. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, our guest is Dr. Jackie Dillon. Jackie, what's the crack? How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Lovely to finally meet up with you guys. Yeah, this is this has been a long one in the pipeline. So um, I know for a fact that Seven myself really admire your work and been following the, the Hearing Voices Network for a while. So yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for making the time for this. Um, just to start off, Jackie, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself and, and how you came to be doing what you're doing? Sure. So um, I'm actually second generation Irish. Um, my family originate from Cork in Ireland and for many generations, but I was born in London um, and in East, East, East London. I'm a Hackney girl, so uh, born and bred in the East End and lived here all my life and I love it. Um, And I'm a mum. And I, before I kind of went mad, uh, as I like to use the colloquial term, um, I had a whole other career working. um, I used to sell paparazzi photos. 
Yeah, yeah. So I worked in Fleet Street um, and had a whole kind of stint doing something quite different. So very interested in photography. And I guess that's part of where I got the gift to the gab. It was kind of genetic. And, um, and then... It's a dangerous combination. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's quite a potent combination. And... So, um, and then, as I alluded to, I had, yeah, I, you know, I talk about going mad, which we can get onto this reclamation of kind of ordinary words to describe human experiences. But um, I had my first daughter. And as I've discovered subsequently, um, it was both a profoundly beautiful and meaningful experience for me and also... Um, it unearthed lots of really painful stuff from my childhood. Um, and I, you know, as, as I just said, you know, I've, I've subsequently worked with lots of people who, when they become parents, their own childhoods come back to them in really sometimes quite traumatic ways. So, um, I'd always heard voices since I was a little girl. And the voices that I heard and the experiences that I had um, had sort of largely been manageable, really. You know, there'd been periods when there'd been more difficult experiences and the voices had been more kind of disruptive. I remember f f sort of first talking about it when I was in primary school, when I was about, I don't know, six seven and saying to my friend you know like those voices you hear in your head and she looked at me like no I don't know what you're talking about so I just diverted the conversation and you know I was very um in a way I'd been brought up to be very vigilant about keeping things hidden and being aware of how I came across outside and wanting to kind of keep things under wraps. And that's how I'd lived my life up until that point. And then, yeah, when my daughter was born, the voices became really noisy, really scary, um, really disruptive, quite paranoid. And lots of things lots of things happened um you know when i was taking my daughter out i felt really frightened by people outside that we were going to get attacked and you know i began to feel really unsafe and this basically culminated in me ending up in in a psychiatric hospital in my early 20s and it was devastating um and really really frightening it's like the last thing yeah well it's like the worst thing really you know it's like the thing that none of us wants us to happen to feel like you're you're actually losing your mind is a really really frightening thing to happen to you and to be separated from my partner and my daughter and be in this you know the, the hospital that i ended up in was um a former asylum so it was a very um, antiquated building. And so prior to it being an asylum, it had actually been a workhouse, like an old Victorian workhouse. So it was it was really 
horrid actually and really dilapidated and um you know unlike now where and i mean you know we could spend a long time talking about the system now but at least in most settings women get like their own space and men get their own space but i was put in a mixed ward uh with a curtain around the bed it's really old school and um lots of the patients had been there a really long time were really disturbed and distressed highly medicated and yeah i was pretty freaked out jackie before, before we get started um I, I like to sometimes just um kind of get the foundations underway for some people who may be listening and just to get some uh, some general understanding when you say yeah. that you hear voices what yeah. does that what does that sound like? So when you were saying like as a kid, you know, you said to your friend, oh yeah, you know those voices in your head. Does that, because, you know, for example, I'm reading a novel right now, A Little Life, um, it's quite a harrowing novel actually. It's but, beautiful. Um, by Hanya Yanagihara. I hope I have not butchered her name because it deserves to be said out loud. But um, but yeah, and in there, the, the, the protagonist, spoiler alerts, but he has like voice kind of like an angel and a demon type thing. Mm. But but then the I other remember. side is, I, you know, yeah then the other side is oh is but then I'm, I'm sure a lot of people think well i hear a voice in terms of like we all i assume have some internal monologue that we have and i wonder you know for people who maybe have that is that what you're referring to or is it is it more akin to the the, the little life book in, in in there where the protagonist jude has kind of these two voices or maybe even more how, how does it as actually sound in your head well it you know it's a really good question and 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 Jude, the character in A Little Life, and for people listening, if you're interested in this sort of world, then it's a really wonderful book, although, yeah, it's harrowing and it's a big, fat book, so prepare to kind of dedicate quite a few hours to it. Um, but it's 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 beautiful, and, and, I mean, the character in that, Jude, has a very, very difficult life, and part of what the author is exploring is... Um, why he ends up with these two voices, the angel and the devil, which are kind of aspects of him, as I would understand it. And so the way that I understand voice hearing, both in terms of what I've experienced and then my experiences working with lots of other voice hearers, is that voice hearing is on a continuum. You know, and we always, you say, have an internal voice. Um, but, you know, I'm sure, and, and I'm not prying, but I'm, I'm sure you've both been at times in your life where you've had some kind of conflict and you feel like there's an argument going on in your head, yeah? Um, and I think they're quite common experiences that people have. And I think what can happen is that those voices can sort of take on a life of their own and can become more noisy more separate they can become more of them and you can experience them as being and, and it is about how you experience them as being quite separate to you and and what can happen is the voices then start talking to you like they're separate to you too and and so what they might say is because it is often an experience, I think, that comes out feeling really scared, really overwhelmed, almost like you're, it's too much reality for your mind to take, you know? 
And so what happens? It's like, well, there's me and this is other part of me. And this other part of me is actually in charge of things and um, may boss me about. And then there's another part of me that may actually be holding all the fear and another part of me that's holding all the rage. And so it's a way, I think, that a very sophisticated way the mind's come up with trying to cope with very frightening and overwhelming experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense, and it paints a really a, a really clear picture. I think the the, the follow up question is, um, <clears throat> and, and forgive my ignorance, but when when they're out of the box, so to speak, or when they develop and they become more separate, can they then be put back in the box, or is it then a question of you just live with them and you know when to ignore them, or so on and so forth, or is it? You well, know, do you my live voice with is them great. Friends? Back in the box. Excuse <laughs> me. Pardon. <laughs> you what? <laughs> I should have found a better expression of term there, but you know what I mean. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. I'm just kind of, I'm sharing that with you. They're laughing, you know. It's like you're tentatively asking this question. Um, it's absolutely fine. It's just quite amusing. They're going, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> so I guess that in a way is what the traditional sort of Western biomedical approach is. It's about trying to put them back in the box. It's like saying these are uh, things that often are deemed meaningless, often deemed like really problematic rather than being kind of meaningful in a response to something. And so often what people do, you know, is are encouraged to take quite heavy meds and encouraged to ignore the voices and not engage with them. And in my experience, that didn't really make a lot of sense because I intuitively felt that the voices were meaningful in some way, even though they were frightening and disturbing. And I guess I was kind of innately curious about them and wanted to kind of understand more about them do you know what i mean and yeah. and what i and and later down the line when i got out of hospital i actually worked with a therapist and with his support i began to sort of tentatively explore what would happen if i started to engage with them and ask them questions and what i found is that they would respond and and they would give me really coherent responses and were had really important information for me as well so then the question of kind of putting them back in the box became which is kind of what i'd initially when this therapist said well what about i was saying i'm hearing all these voices and they're scary and then and we sort of talked around that and then he said to me in a session one day what about if you just start listening to them and i was like what listening to them really but partly was a bit excited because i think that's what i'd been wanting but i'd been sort of been giving this message like they're bad you mustn't listen to them you mustn't respond to them so that evening i remember sort of sitting at home and just starting to listen to them and, and they were kind of delighted that i was actually taking them seriously you know it really changed the tone of what they were saying and the way that they were speaking to me and that was kind of the start of a very long journey um, mm. of 
developing a really different relationship with the voices, which is really the, the approach that I would advocate, you know, that it's not about trying to put them back in the box. Um, it's about actually having, well, A, trying to understand what is it they're trying to communicate, why are they there, what, what's it, what, you know, why have they come into your life, but B, then having a, like a much more kind of harmonious relationship with them. Right. And, and Jack, I just want to, because <clears throat> I'm, for, for some of our listeners, we did a podcast fairly recently with some, with a, a great man, Dr. Um, Mike Lloyd. And um, I know, yeah, I know of Mike's yeah. work, yeah. And, and, and some people might kind of be listening to what you're saying. And I think there's maybe an easy link to draw that. That might be a, a, a kind of a false friend, really. So, you know, in Mike's work, what he what, what would be the thing is that that the, his patients they inhabit these personalities. These these people are they're just multiple facets of themselves, right? So, whereas what you're saying is these voices that you're talking to, that you're asking questions, that are giving you coherent responses, they are completely uh, separate to Jackie Dylan. You are always at all points, Jackie. And you are just asking, well, I, you know, and then these voices are talking to you and, and whatever the case may be. But it's not as if at some point you may be, you may, you might, you actually think of yourself as Sarah. I'm just going to invent a name there, Amy or whatever. Just to just kind of to draw that, uh, that difference, that delineation between what Mike, what we spoke about with Dr. Mike think, and what yeah, we're talking to with I, yourself. I, I wouldn't draw that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw that delineation. I mean, I think right. what, what, you know, what happens in psychiatry is, the experience that Mike is describing, dissociation, mm -hmm. is seen as a very different experience to psychosis. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of my work is saying is actually that there's a real overlap between those experiences. Right. And they're not necessarily completely different experiences at all. Okay. Um, it's about how, you're, how you kind of present to professionals and, you know, one of the things that, that I often say is that sort of diagnosis is in the eye of the beholder, you know, so it very much depends on what the person who is the clinician who's working with you, what their frame of reference is and what mm. they're most familiar with in terms of how they um, would describe you. And I guess that's part of the work, that's part of my work. Most of the people that I work with have been given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Mm hmm uh, but what I and my colleagues have found is that they that those experiences there's a, they're on a continuum. You know the experiences of dissociation where people are completely different part. You know that they inhabit those different parts of themselves. Some people who hear voices that is their experience, and for some people they they more hear voices. Right and. So there's an overlap. So I, I don't know that it can be that clearly delineated. Right. No, well, that's helpful. That's really helpful. And, and, and for me as well, the, you know, when you said that, for example, when you started to finally listen to them and, and to ask them questions and engage and they would give you these coherent answers, and mm -hmm. it, like kind of information, was this, these answers that they were giving, I mean, obviously I don't know the questions that you were asking, but the answers that they were giving, were they answers that were unbeknown to yourself and what i'm what, what i'm trying to get at i guess is, is you, you rightly said that you know well i talked to myself maybe not jim but yeah we've all had at some point conflicts in our own minds where we've almost had like a little argument with ourselves and whatever else but in my at least in my own experience 
I've always known, like even if I'm having this little conflict, I kind of know both sides of the arguments and I'm just trying to work out which is the right way to go ahead or what I should do in a certain situation or whatever else. But I've never like had a, a conflict in, and then in my head something's like a voice has come out and said something that I wasn't aware of myself, if that makes sense. So I wonder if these voices yeah. are giving you answers, information that you yourself aren't aware of, almost and, and completely separate to yourself. I mean, they were then, absolutely. And, you know, because I had this whole traumatic childhood that I'd largely not engaged with and not really dealt with. And I had a, like, for me, there was just this kind of veil where all of this sort of horrible childhood stuff existed that I never explored um, and, and didn't have really clear memories of. Um, and the difficulties that I was experiencing at that point, um, you know, I had this vague sense that it was about stuff that happened, but it was all very vague. And they were able to be much, yeah, they had much more idea about all of that. So, Jackie, what comes to mind is I wanted to ask you, do you, do you think that we're coming towards um, a kind of shift in a collective understanding of how we understand ourselves? So in the sense that we're not this kind of um, random, fairly static understanding of who I am, but rather we're kind of this collective, layered um, amalgamation of our experiences. And that's probably why we feel how we feel about certain issues or how we respond, how we respond to certain issues. I mean, um, you've heard of... Um, internal family systems absolutely i mean i i think voices can make you feel crazy and but often you know as i say maddening things happened to me you know and there's but actually my response was really sane and i think you know we've been talking for a little while um hopefully you have a sense that i'm a kind of sane and rational person and you know that even at times when I've been deeply distressed, when people know me and know what's happened to me, I make sense, you know. And and that's been my experience in working with people, even people that are saying things and behaving in ways that seem really irrational and crazy and disturbing. When you actually get to know somebody and you know their story, it's always about context, you know, and people always makes sense. I mean, I think one of the things that happens is that when bad things happen when you're very little, sometimes your ways of communicating that are kind of more symbolic or metaphorical. So in the same way that like the language of dreams is, is um, often symbolic or metaphorical, you know, and, and if you've had a significant dream, you kind of wake up and think, why did that man say that to me? And why was I in that place? And why was I swimming? And, you know, like you, you kind of are struck by all of these kind of powerful images and experiences that you have in a dream. And some people say that so-called psychosis is a bit like being awake in a dream, you know, that you have these... Um, really powerful experiences that are communicated in this quite metaphorical or symbolic way. And and I think what happens is that, that people sometimes take those things very literally and clinicians take them very literally 
rather than see them as a way of trying to communicate something sometimes in a language that's um it's a bit like if i if i talk about it in this way then there's there's a there's a, it's protecting me from the real thing that i'm really trying to say do, do you know what i mean so in a in a bit like I had a therapist who used to say to me that like a significant dream is a bit like a telephone call from your unconscious, you know, and um, which I really like. And it's a bit like, you know, you can have a dream and then you can spend your day trying to ignore it. Do you know what I mean? And not think about it because it's disturbed you or you can say, right, I'm going to write about that dream and I'm going to really ask myself. And I thought about this actually, Seb, when you said to me, well, I don't have that where I don't know these parts of myself. But if you imagine having a really um, intense dream that you feel is significant to you, that's disturbed you in some way, you could choose to then dialogue with a part of yourself and say, uh, you know, if your dominant hand is your right hand, for example, you could say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write with my left hand and I'm gonna see ask ask myself what was that dream about? Why am I having this significant dream now? And you might be surprised actually at the responses you get, much in the same way that I was when I first began speaking to that voice. And so just to dip in for, for anyone listening who's not really familiar with internal family systems. I guess the, the the best way you can kind of um, succinctly put it is it is um, encouraging or propagating the idea that, that we are made up of parts and it parts is in an inner an inner child you or an inner child you had had this experience or a part of you that is worried that the inner child has to go through this again. So sorry, the, I mean... I think a great way is even Seb mentioned earlier how there was a part of him that felt this and a part of him that felt this. And I think it's in our everyday language. So while it, it, it may come off crazy that I think that I'm made up of parts, that there's there's, a, there's an inner, inner Jim that thinks this, um, but there's also a part of Jim that knows that this is better for him and that it's good for him in the long run. But then also there's another part that is just afraid to do anything. Um, and that sounds like it can be kind of paralyzing or that sounds that it can be very complex and complicated. But it has helped me a lot with my own kind of inner conflicts and just be able to acknowledge that there isn't just, you know, James or Jim thinks this. There's actually, oh, no, there's different parts of me and I kind of have to weigh them up and acknowledge them um, and then try and come to the decision. And yeah i do think that even just acknowledging that in itself that that there that often we do have a little bit of um differing opinions and there is that dynamic within us can really kind of help us on a day-to-day but also with big decisions in our lives and yeah i think that in itself is is quite healing literally just thinking of that as you spoke actually yeah i i yeah, I, I, I do. I think it's fabulous. I've, just, I've got, um, yeah, I've got uh, Richard Swartz right on my desk here, in fact. No bad parts. Yeah, it's bad. It's really good. 
really, really good. Yeah, no, I'd really recommend it. I do. I do. Well, I think some of us are. I mean, this is the thing, you know, uh, talking about dissociation. I think there's a lot of dissociation in the general population. And um, and that's why I, I very much see these things on a continuum. And I think that some of us are further down that road in terms of our understanding. You know, the fact that you guys host this podcast and it's something that there are issues and questions that you're both exploring and interested in. I mean, you're interested in what makes us human and what 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 goes on in people's internal worlds and and how do we conceptualize the mind and how um how do human beings operate and exist and you know for me these are really profoundly important questions but lots of people never think about these things ever you know they think about money and gucci and the size of their ass and do you know what i mean it's like <laughs> They don't. I do envy them sometimes, Jackie. I have to admit. But is it? Is it? You know? Is it? I think that's that's the illusion. Um, you know, the more work you do, you, the more you realise that actually those people feel frightened and lost and worried and maybe don't have a language. Sorry, Jim, you were going to say something. Just sorry. Just before Seb pops in, I I just wanted to. To recount this quote with you, Jackie, um, at the start of last year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Ian Hickey, and I referenced a quote to him, which went some somewhere along the lines of, those who get ill are canaries in the coal mine. They are showing us that society is sick. Their healing is our healing. And I guess I wanted to know if you feel that this is applicable to a lot of people um, diagnosed with psychosis and the people that you've met in the Hearing Voices Network. The thing, the thing is, I think that, you know, retort of, oh, he sounds crazy is just a defence. It's just a defence because there's there's another part of that person that thinks that sounds familiar and it sounds really scary and territory that I don't want to go into. So I'm going to call him crazy and weird and freakish and, you know, other names to humiliate him and make him feel small because that's the feelings it evokes in me. Do you know what I mean? It's like that's a defence that people have. And, you know, and and that's kind of understandable, but I... I, I guess I wouldn't put too much weight on that, you know, and even people, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I, I remember when I was doing research for this podcast, I came across this, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, this like pretty extensive piece of research that compared people with the same symptoms, and I believe hearing voices was one of the symptoms, that people with the same symptoms in a country in Africa, in a particular region in India, and a particular region in North America. And both the people with the symptoms in India and in Africa were much more likely to, I think the phrase that they used was flourish in the community compared to North America. And I don't know if the, I think it, towards the end of the research, it's kind of suggesting that in India, 
or in parts of India and in parts of Africa, there is a kind of acceptance that here is this person have, having a unique experience and we accept that person for having that this a unique experience and maybe they can provide something as a result, provide something special to the community as a result of these experiences rather than in the West where we kind of say, oh, that's not normal and you said you heard that but you probably didn't and you said you saw this but you probably didn't. Um, because I was even thinking this morning, you know, if I say, oh yeah, I I heard something today and um, four people that I know said, oh no, that didn't happen, James. No, that, there's no way that happened. You know, it's very easy <laughs> to see how, how so many people with such symptoms are kind of deteriorating as a result because they're just being told that their experience just didn't happen. Well, because these are things are human. That you know, they're part of being human, and it's like I thought that when Seb was saying, "Well, I don't," you know, that that's not my experience. And in a lot of my teaching, I'll sort of say, "But under the right or wrong circumstances, any of us could have these experiences." You know, if something really awful happened and you felt really isolated and you were unable to sleep and you were in a real conflict and you felt terrible. And then another really bad thing happened. It's like there's only so much any of our minds can take, you know. And so it is a part of being human. And I think that sort of um, societal thing of, um, you know, that's hearing voices is, is means you're crazy and all of that, is, it, it's, it's speaking of the fear. It's fear. And I understand that fear. But I think once you get past that, there's a kind of curiosity. And, and for me, there's a question like with any of these experiences, like, where is that in me? You know, is that something I can ever identify with? And how, what in me enables me to relate to that in somebody else? Um, because, it, it, yeah, these are all on the spectrum of being human. I mean, even sort of awful bad things, people doing bad things. It's like if we just see these people as kind of um, monsters, in a way it it demonstrates our lack of imagination, I think. Which doesn't mean that pe people doing monstrous things don't disturb and frighten us and repulse us and all of that, but to not see that this is actually what some human beings are capable of. Yeah, it just for me, it demonstrates a lack of kind of imagination. And but going back to the the question about, you know, are we on the cusp of understanding human experience in a different way? You know, this sort of internal family systems and talking about dissociation. I mean, something I've been saying for a while is, you know, maybe one way of thinking about is that these are all altered states of consciousness and that's another way of thinking about it you know i'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because as if you read my mind it was going to basically be my next question but, oh wow well, because well no, no don't don't start uh, appealing to my grandiosity please <laughs> <laughs> well i mean the, 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 a couple of points is before before i start with that question i think you know you're saying about 
confronting that fear and once we get over that fear then we can start to really i think also you get an understanding right and it doesn't necessarily mean and unfortunately some of us have to confront that fear and get over it because of personal circumstance like yourself yeah. where you've gone through yeah. something which just look here it is here's the monster right in front of you and you haven't got a choice life hasn't given yeah. you a choice but then yeah. you know to shout out one of my mates ollie he has and i'm sure he has some problems that i always give him a bit of a bit of jip for it but like he has the quote unquote the perfect life you know what i mean the family's all good it's all groovy like maybe the the the, the best the worst thing that happens to him is his chicken is overcooked on a sunday roast type thing but he through being a good mate of mine and helping me through my own tribulations whatever else he had he willingly kind of puts himself in situations to and it sounds silly, but even like, um, and Dr. Mike Lloyd said that, you know, the film Split, for example, was really good at just opening people's eyes to it. Obviously understanding that some of it is very Hollywood, that you don't just all automatically grow into this Hulk-like freak, freak. But there were parts of that film that actually kind of were fairly realistic. And, you know, the, A Little Life is another, like we've spoken about before, a book where it can really give someone that window into what another human experience can be like, even if it is so far away from your own. And I, I remember reading a passage of that book about when, spoiler alert, when he's about to commit suicide and he gives the rationale of why he's going to do it to set free all the people he loves and all the rest of it. And it was a rationale that I couldn't argue with. But yet, if you had, if you had asked me before, is, is suicide, you know, I could have, oh yeah, this is, but you read that and you go, no, I get where the, the guy's coming from. I get why he cuts himself. These things that I could have never imagined myself understanding through my own ex lived experience, but through the experience of fiction, basically, you know, you can somehow, you can get some level of understanding. And I think that's really, really important message. But the, to, 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 to follow on let, from let me just say the, the, though, what just you were to, saying just, there. Just, just on, to please. say, Seb, I think that's why art and literature is so important, you know? Mm. And, and I think that's why these things aren't just a matter of science yeah you know and and that i think art and literature and you know have a place because they allow us to imaginatively enter into um into different worlds and different possibilities that in a way a dry uh, academic text would make it much more difficult you know but there's there's a piece of music by Radiohead that I use in some of my teaching. Like I'll use music sometimes in teaching to try and convey certain things. There's a piece of um, How to Disappear Completely. It's a song by Radiohead, which is about dissociation. In fact, he t interestingly, he talks about the River Liffey and he's walking down past the River Liffey. And it's like, if I try to put that into you know language in another way it would never convey that feeling mm. in the way that listening to that music where there's this sort of disjuncture and it's disjointed and these kind of really jarring sounds that make you feel this sense of dislocation do you know what i mean and yeah. it's like so i think art and literature are really important and yeah. um it's important you know like that that in the teaching of sort of psychiatrists and therapists, I think we need things like art and literature to help things come to life rather than just cold yeah. academic texts. Anyway, For sorry. Sure. No, no, it's, it's a really important point. And my question that I had lined up was, you know, I, I know that you, we've obviously spoken about hearing voices and I know that sometimes as well, we there's also the, you know, seeing visions and, uh, and, and I wanted to ask, do you think, you know, Jim and I are kind, kind of uh, interested by the idea that we might have lost a lot of um, human knowledge 
that was available to our predecessors that is no longer with us anymore through the almost the evolution of science that we now discredit things that maybe beforehand you know we're taking on we had a, a, a podcast with um with a, a druid and so these types of knowledges that we don't now we kind of discard and i wonder do you think i'm really interested in the idea of psychedelics and and how they can help us um in the medical sense um but you know about well not but they still do it, obviously but it's very common to have your shaman and, and to go through experiences where you would see vivid um you know um, um sights and, and you'd hear things and it was but that was completely normal i use the in the air quotes there because it goes along with the experience it's what's expected and I, I just wonder if maybe you think that um we are accessing that same level of consciousness that we might be able to access with mushrooms or other other psychedelics but you're doing it almost you're doing it naturally so to speak and there you are not having to intake something to get to that to that plane you're 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 already there or, or am i t uh, tugging on a thread that doesn't exist no i don't think you are i mean i mean there's there's a whole kind of school of transpersonal psychology and psychotherapy which is interested in this stuff you know of, of um and jung of course was very interested in this area of um so you know and he was a visionary um and um so i you know i i would i'm interested in you know this re-emergence of hallucinogens and psych psychedelics like a good friend of mine microdosed his way through lockdown and you know he for him that was how he got through lockdown and he goes off uh once a year and goes on on, on a journey um through ingesting hallucinogens which is about kind of facing stuff and and i i would say i don't really need to do that you know that i have my own ways and and you know even talking about something like internal family systems or a lot of not just that but lots of uh kinds of therapeutic approach where you are using internal imagery and metaphor and symbolism which is of that world you know, we were talking about a dream world, and it's it's um, it, it's it's the same world. You know, where things are redolent with imagery, and things can have multiple meanings. And you know, the thing about sort of Western science is is that if if it can't be seen and recorded and all of that, then it doesn't exist. And for me, that just feels very very reductive. And, you know, talking about sort of voice hearing, a lot of these experiences, um, what that means is it becomes very mechanistic and it's very much about sort of brain biology or chemistry, which again feels very reductive and like it's missing the point of, you know, it's like, well, there's probably a chemical for love or, um, you know, it's, it's a brain state, but, you know, to just reduce religious experience or love to a brain state or a biochemical change for me feels hugely reductive and it feels like that's the same as as these other states of being you know that are deemed meaningless and i think with a different lens um then Yes, they might be scary, but lots of initiatory experience is scary, potentially. But it doesn't mean it's not significant and profoundly meaningful and potentially really life-changing. Do you know what I mean? 
Mm, that's beautiful, Jackie. I love that. I, I, I mean, there could well be people listening to this podcast now who do have that kind of negative relationship with the voices that you you're mentioning before, um, and they probably haven't even considered the possibility that it's as a result of a culture rather than uh, their inherent, you know, wrongness. Uh, and the fact that there could be, you know, if they were in a different culture, if they were in this uh, in Ghana, if they were in this region in India, they perhaps wouldn't have this negative uh, relationship with the voice or with the voices, and they could actually be uh, feel appreciated for having these voices. Well, it's crazy making, surely, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy making if you're having this really intense. For you, really profound and meaningful experience, even if it is disturbing and scary. I mean, what you need is somebody going, really? What happened? Tell me more, you know. And and also, like, what does that make you think about? And what do you connect to? What's the personal meaning for you? And is there a collective and cultural meaning? And, like, let's think about that together rather than that didn't happen. Don't talk about it. I mean, that is stigmatising. There, there's your stigma. You know, these experiences are not innately stigmatising. They're human. They're part of being human that some of us, because of the extreme things that have happened to us, experience. But you could have a completely different attitude and stance. I mean, the talking about, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're talking about the same piece of research, but in terms of hearing voices, a group of anthropologists did some research where they compared the voice hearing experiences of people in Ghana India and North America and what they found is that and this for me was really really fascinating so in terms of the kind of subjective phenomenological experience um, the voice hearers in, in Ghana, India and North America all had very similar experiences you know they all heard the same number of kinds of voices you know male female voices children adults voices so you know in terms of that stuff it was quite similar um and and all of them said that the voices uh were noisy and sometimes argumentative and all of this stuff the thing that was distinctly different is that the people in ghana and india all had positive relationships with those experiences and the people in North America, none of them, not one, had a positive relationship with those experiences. Now, my take on that is, well, A, isn't it fascinating that in these very different parts of the world, because Ghana and India are very different places to live to each other, and then there's North America, but that there was a real sort of, there were real parallels for all of those people in all those different settings in terms of the voice hearing experience that's interesting to me the other thing that's really striking is that there seems to be a huge relationship between the cultural context and what the culture is saying you're allowed to experience or what you're not allowed to experience you know so going back to the question about sort of you know the progression of science part of that progression of science is these things are anomalous and therefore are bad and out of that comes a whole lot of stigma and discrimination um 
which again you know the the psychiatrist that i've worked closely with marius from one of the things we wrote a paper which is about the freedom to hear voices and one of the things that marius would argue um is that it's not voice hearing that's problematic it's society's attitude to voice hearing that's problematic you know and that he he would say that people we would say that people should be free to hear voices and that it's not voice hearers that need to change it's society that needs to change and you know if we just sat with that for a little while i mean it kind of goes back to your question jim about well are we on the cusp of seeing things differently it's like well, some of us are and some of us are very long way away but if we all were what might it be like for voice hearers, for example? Do you know what I mean? What, what might it be like for people who have more unusual ways of experiencing the world? Um, and maybe those of us who experience the world in different ways would have something to teach other people about what it means to be human. I would love for this to be a key takeaway from the podcast for, for listeners. The idea that, like as you said, Jackie, that the, the voices in your experience um, kind of became louder and more frequent until you started to um, fully hold them, right? Fully accept them, fully listen to them. And I would love for listeners to, to consider that also, the fact that or the possibility that the voices can be helpful to them. The voices can aid their day-to-day life and they don't have to be viewed as um, such an overarching hindrance. Now, I know, um, like you mentioned, you will you would probably need the assistance of someone who is... Who is going through a similar experience or a professional in this regard um but but just that kind of possibility is kind of like sense feels like feels very hopeful feels very hopeful absolutely and exactly exactly and and you know, so it's important for people that are listening to know that there is a Hearing Voices movement that is, you know, operating in Ireland, in the UK, in Spain, where Seb is, in, in many countries in Europe and in, in, in South America and now in India and Kenya and Australia, New Zealand, the US. Um, so do some research and uh, we can share some links as well. Um, and... There's tons of research, so I'm, I've talked quite a lot about me because, of course, I'm endlessly fascinating. But um, <laughs> there's a whole body of research, both my work, but, you know, many, many people's work that's, um, you know, those of us that work with people who hear voices. Um, I've worked with hundreds of people who hear voices. I've helped set up groups. I've done training across the world. Uh, you know, I'm coming over to Ireland later this year. I've, been to, I've helped set up the Hearing Voices Network in Ireland. So there's about 40 groups now across Ireland. Um, we've got about 170 groups in, in England. Um, we've set up an, a network in the US now. So there's, you know, groups spread across the US. So 
and and essentially that is about trying to create communities safe places where people can get together and share these experiences and where they don't have to deny their own realities and nobody in that space will deny their reality where they're also able to start sort of exploring well what do these voices mean to me and and experiment with trying out different ways of relating with those voices as well so that the voices um can become more helpful to them in their lives because i think that was the original intent of the voices to be helpful to help people to survive awful things that's uh that's really a powerful image you know the like you asking you asking your friend why uh why is your friend unhappy with you and to take the step back and go well it's probably or potentially because i've been ignoring them for 20 years or I've been telling them to shut up for 20 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was a book that I worked on with Marius Rom, the psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier, and a couple of other people called Living With Voices. And, and one of the things we do, we did is we collected 50 stories of people who'd used this kind of way of, of, of being with their voices. Um, and, you know, rather than just taking medication to suppress them and, ignoring the voices actually choosing to engage directly with the voices in the way that you just described and and one of the things that seemed to be key was a supportive relationship or relationships where the person was able to kind of talk through the voices with somebody who was open-minded and curious and interested and not freaked out and that seemed to be pivotal really in enabling the person to start to develop a different relationship with the voices and you know to begin to you know sometimes it's about setting boundaries of the voices but also to start talking more calmly more respectfully to the voices in a way kind of like you would in any other relationship you know it's like we develop a kind of dysfunctional relationship so it's a bit like well if I want a better relationship, I should stop telling you to shut up then, you know. I need to sort of say, I'm, so, you know, and that was part of my journey, actually saying to my voices, I'm sorry that I was so rejecting. I'm sorry I was so hostile to you. And they were like, it's okay, we understand you were scared. Which I found really moving and really touching. And and then they could say, sorry that we threatened you, but we were frustrated with you and you weren't listening. And... You know, so I sometimes describe it as like a process of truth and reconciliation, an internal process of truth and reconciliation. And so now my voice is funny. They really make me laugh. They're really irreverent, you know, and cheeky. And they're comforting. Um, they're loving. They're really compassionate. You know, they're wise. And I feel really grateful to them, you know, and I feel like, you know, rather than this being like this kind of horrible thing I've got to live with, it's it's like a gift that I've got, actually. Um, and it's a gift that that lots of people do have. And I, and, and I would love for people either themselves or people they love to sort of just start exploring a different way of relating to these experiences 
that would you know that would give me a lot of pleasure to know that people might try that and do that for themselves because it's it's heartbreaking really to think that people some people have lived a life having this horrific kind of battle with themselves and their voices you know what a way to be it's kind of heartbreaking it's not inevitable you know thanks for that jackie i wanted to ask you about titles you mentioned roughly about 20 minutes ago in the interview i think you said so-called psychosis and i guess i wanted to ask um for you and for the people that you work with in your network is there a strong majority of them that don't particularly uh, find value in or appreciate um, the the label or title of schizophrenic or psychosis, uh, and would they prefer to say, "I hear voices," and and that's how I experience the world? And if you work from that basis, then it makes it a lot easier to start thinking about, well, how might I start to try and build up a different relationship? And also, if, if you've been, if it's take, you know, if you've been um, alienated from each other for twenty years going to take time and you need to go slowly and gently you know there's no rush so you know take it really tentatively and slowly but also there are resources out there um because i think hearing other people's stories can be really encouraging and um give you confidence ah yeah i I can totally understand that the the medical phrase or the medical title or label isn't really providing a lot of clarity and that people would prefer to use kind of everyday language to describe what the, what their experience is yeah i mean there's there's a whole thing about um you know we could do a whole other podcast about diagnoses actually and the validity of diagnosis um but um we, you know, it's about moving away from medical language and, and this sort of very scientific language. I think psychosis, it culturally, it's sort of like it's shorthand for it's meaningless, you know. And I think what we try and do is really just talk about the experience, which is hearing voices or seeing visions or whatever it is that the person experiences, because it's sort of, it, it's more descriptive. It's ordinary human language. It's less scary and alienating. So, um yeah that's the preference really thanks for that jackie i wanted to touch on the relationship between hearing voices and trauma and in your experience and and all the people you've worked with i wanted to know if a large percentage of the people um who do who do hear voices that you've come across do they do they use or is trauma early um trauma usually an indicator do they think oh i think these voices are a response to a particularly profound or powerful trauma in early childhood or is there a steady percentage of people that say I mean, everyone has a little bit of trauma, of course, but there was nothing huge for me. I just think hearing voices, that's just me. I think so, because, you know, surely the point of language is is 
to help things become more understandable. And I think, if anything, the term schizophrenia, it's like people don't even know what that really means or psychosis, you know, to, so to disc use very ordinary words. I mean, for some people, they don't say uh, hearing voices even. They'll say, you know, talking to spirits or whatever it is. So I would use their description. I wouldn't impose my frame of reference. So that's one of the things about the hearing voices movement that we very much respect a whole broad range of explanations and so uh, including the language that, that we use. But certainly for me, I'm, I'm happy to call it hearing voices. I'm fine with that. And before we finish, Jackie, um, can I ask about your, your time with the Hearing Voices Network and Obviously, you've been involved in this area for quite some time, and I guess I wanted to know if you feel like there's progress across society. Are we reaching? Um, are we going towards a place where more and more people are um, looking at people and dealing with people who hear voices in a more respectful manner um, in a way that we think, oh, this is just a person who hears voices, but they are they can contribute and they can converse with me and they can do all these things as well. I don't need to totally stigmatize them and I don't need to say that or feel that they should be somewhere else. And yeah, I guess I wanted to to ask if you think that we are making progress or yeah, where's your head at there? I mean, there is a, there is a big relationship between trauma and hearing voices but I wouldn't want to be categorical about that because I'm sure there are some people who would say there isn't there isn't a big trauma and and I guess it, it again it's like it, it's how we think about trauma but also I think some people um I mean you know because it's kind of like a negative consequence and another way of thinking about it is some people are just naturally more creative and have a different way of experiencing the world um i mean i think within the research literature as well there's a move away from trauma and thinking about adversity you know for some some of us you know we were quite lonely as children and uh voices um come out of kind of loneliness um and for some people they you know they've always felt there was a lot going on inside of them so um a lot of the people I work with have experienced trauma and relate the voices to trauma. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be categorical about that because I, I, I couldn't speak for all voice hearers. But I, I, I think it's important to explore the possibility of trauma with people because it is so often neglected. And the thing is, if you, if you, if you attend to what the voices are saying, the voices will tell the story and help you understand more about where they come from and why they exist. So, even more recent, even more reason to listen to the voices. Just two more. One, Jackie, is there's something that you would like to say that we haven't really covered in this podcast that you think someone listening would like to hear, whether they are hearing voices themselves and feel a bit. Um, stigmatized or neglected by a medical model or medical system or is it if it's somebody who's listening who has a loved one is there something that you would like to say that we haven't really covered already depends what day you ask me really you know 
some days I feel more optimistic that we've made progress and and other times I feel like wow you know I've been doing this work for 25 plus years and it feels like we're just scratching the surface I mean maybe both are true you know maybe both are true that in some areas um this is old news and in other places it's it's unheard of still you know and and even within one location like in like in london you know that can be true that in certain parts you know in in certain you know certain mental health workers or certain individuals may be really familiar with these ideas and for other people that it kind of blow their minds so um I mean, I think, you know, going back to the sort of question about trauma as well, that there's still huge amounts of trauma in the world. And um, and in a way, there's, you know, without kind of suddenly getting massively political about this at the end of the coming towards the end of the podcast. But, you know, there's a there's a kind of vested interest in sort of lie, relying on medication, say, you know. And so that stuff gets heavily promoted as being the answer. And, you know, some interesting stuff going on looking at sort of TikTok and social media and how that is really promoting uh, the idea about sort of being mentally ill. And, you know, for a certain group sector of young people, there's, there's kind of like that's something that's really sought after. And that concerns me, you know. Um, and it's like a, yeah, it's kind of distressing in some way, and and, it, and an express an expression of sort of a yearning for identity and belonging, I guess. Um, so, um, I think it's going to become in a way more complicated, and we're going to have to you know what it means to be human in in a way is becoming more complicated isn't it where we're being bombarded with all this stuff and coming out of you know an international pandemic and you know i imagine that lots of people began to hear voices as a consequence of being in their houses on their own for long periods of time feeling really frightened you know for some people it was incredible well, lots of people it's incredibly isolating so um yeah, I think we're making progress and we've still got a long way to go, actually. That's yeah. the truth. Um, but, you know, these kinds of conversations are really, really important. And, I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation is something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and and I feel a lot of the a lot of the people we talk to, a lot of the guests we talk to, you know, the Mike Lloyds and, and the people that we've wrestled for, Isol, Tomley, and they would say very similar to you, you know. One on the one hand, it feels like they're just scratching on the surface. On the other hand, it feels like they've helped make huge bounds uh, in what is the understanding of the human experience. And I think, and like I said, like you said, I think both are are, are true. But um, I like to focus on yeah. on the more positive one because you know we we get listeners. It's not as that we have millions of listeners, but we get listeners who who write in after a specific episode and they say, "Oh, that having that guest on like 
really, really helped me. And it's like, well, did that just help that one person alone? And if no one, it didn't help anyone yeah, else, absolutely. but just that one person alone, then it was worth that. It was worth the time, you know, having that interview and whatever else. And I'm sure you're, you're, you're with your network you've got as, like you said, well, like you said, it's in so many different countries with so many different spots within the countries that you're, you're helping all these people massively. And, and that can't be, um, that can't be overstated really. It can't be. And, and, you know, when I started doing this work a really long time ago, it was much more contentious what I was saying. And sometimes I would go to speak to large, large audiences with, in my mind, there, only, there may only be one people, person here that can hear what I've got to say, but mm. I'm going to say it anyway, you know. And, and I think, yeah, having quite a humble uh, intentions mm. is the way to go, actually. And... Um, because at the end of the day, like, yeah, as you say, if this reaches an individual that, that it has a big effect on, like, mm. that would be great, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the, the worst question till last. I feel like this is very horrible of me, but talking about, you know, we, we've spoken about how the arts and literature can really help. And I think it's a, it's a point that we've stumbled on because I didn't have it planned to bring it up or or anything like that. But I do think it's so important because it can often give us that person who's listening to the song or watching the film or reading the book a language and a chance to feel like they're being seen or represented and that they're not crazy, right? Um, so I wondered, I'm sure you mm -hmm. must have loads of other references and i just wonder if anyone who's listening to this if you you know we've mentioned we've mentioned radiohead but i wonder if there's a film or a couple of films or or a play or another book along the lines of little life something that you would say look if you're even if it's just someone like my mate ollie who would just be interested in just learning more even if they don't necessarily think that this is their own personal experience just so that they can learn more about the human experience in general what are there any sort of like um rt uh, references that you could give I, i'd really love to hear about those well something that comes to mind is a novel that a friend of mine wrote actually i mean he became a friend through uh through the writing of this novel his name's jasper gibson and the book is called the octopus man and it's really really wonderful book um so jasper contacted me quite a few years ago now and he was doing research for this novel that was based on the experiences of his cousin, cousin Ed and Ed um, had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, heard voices and, and was a really intelligent, uh, creative, sensitive person who died suddenly and Jasper went with his with the help of his cousin and began to uh, clear up Ed's place and found all these journals and notebooks and uh, bits of paper that Ed had written down to this octopus god that he heard. And so the novel is based um, around Ed's experiences and it's a really, really fantastic novel. Um, it's available on Audible as well, um, and it's read by the actor Johnny Mercer, um, who's a really great actor. So it's dark, it's scary at points, it's quite disturbing at points. It's really funny, like dark humour. It's beautifully written, and I think it really gets inside what it's like to hear voices. So I was, I was a consultant to 
that book. It's now being turned into a um, TV program, and I'm going to be a consultant on that too. So I'd really right. recommend that as um, a really fan. You know, I, I, yeah. I'd recommend it, Seb, Perfect. if you're, if you're yep. into, yeah. into novels. Great yes. Stuff. Yeah, get, get that on your, your reading list, Perfect. The Octopus Man. Yeah, it's just come out in paperback, actually. So. Yeah, well, check we'll, that put, out. We'll, we'll put the link on, on, on in, in the in the description below. And like we've mentioned, a little life. I think I'm just fit coming to the end of it. Like you said, it is a slog, so <laughs> I think I might stay. I'm like got the last hundred pages to go, but I feel like I just need to get it done with. So <laughs> I think I might be staying up to about two a.m. tonight just to finish that one off and be able to close it. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's another one that I, I would highly recommend to anyone who kind of is just interested in learning a bit more. That's yeah, a, it's, it's wonderful. I, but yeah, I remember we went going. to Waterstones because we picked up the second book of um, of the author. Not and we hadn't read the first. Had you read the first one yet? We we're like, no. Said, oh no, you have to read that one. But you know, you'll need a therapist. And I was like, Jesus Christ! I mean, like, I know I've got a mental health podcast, so maybe I'm the perfect <laughs> audience. But I was like, I'm not sure that's the sales technique. And then uh, reading it through, I was like, Yeah, I understand why she said that. It's fair <laughs> enough. It kind of it feels appropriate. Um, yeah quite harrowing yeah no no the octopus man is different it's Perfect. very well very no, i'll different. definitely add that to the list um, um and, and thank you so much jackie it's really, really i loved it sorry jim and lastly jackie we always ask our guests how do they take care of their own mental health i mean just to say they're not alone you know there are many of us that have gone down that road and felt really um unseen and unheard and despairing and that that wasn't the way for us. And there is the Hearing Voices movement. And as I said, there are groups, you know, in different parts of the world now, there's stuff online. Um, so to know you're not alone, to not give up hope, to know that the, that the voices are there for a reason, that it is possible to, to live with these experiences. You know, I've, um, I've heard voices for most of my life and, I still hear voices, as I've said, and, uh, you know, I've got a good job, got a nice home, I've, you know, I've got a decent life, and it is possible to have a good life and to hear voices. So to, 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 not, to not feel that that's not possible, you know, it is possible, it is possible to hear voices and have a good life. Oh, I've come across Kristen Neff. Kristen Neff, she, she, she talks a lot about touch, right? Hmm, how do I take care of my mental health? Good question. I think the thing, the practice that's been most nourishing for me is my self-compassion practice. So um, there's, there's, you know, it's part of sort of mindfulness practice like loving awareness um, and... So for me, I became more interested in not just the mindfulness stuff, but the stuff about actually being with with our own suffering in with with love and care. You know, one of the things that we do is when we don't feel good, we kind of really beat ourselves up. And like, why are you feeling bad? Stop feeling bad, you weakling, you know, and just kind of can be really mean to ourselves. And a lot of the self-compassion research that says we can be much more compassionate to other people and can be really hard on ourselves. So for me, something that I really try and practice and um, 
come back to is the self, the, the self-compassion stuff. So, um, you know, like, may I be kind to myself? May I be free from suffering? You know, and really practicing that, particularly when things feel really shaky or I feel really distressed or upset or disappointed or hurt or whatever it is, you know, because I think our our, our sort of being human, when we're under threat, all our sort of threat responses get activated and we need something to kind of counter that. So I think the self-compassion stuff for me is, yeah, really helpful. I'd really recommend Kristin Neff. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. It's great stuff. She absolutely does. I was listening to one of her books today and she was talking about, um, you know, when you need the kind of more tender aspect of self-compassion that, you know, you might put your hand on your heart or stroke your face or or this kind of thing, you know. And, and then if you need something more powerful, you might put your fist on your heart. And, yeah, that, that there's a absolutely touches, you know, it's like it, it tells our body, I'm here for you, you know. So uh, good stuff, Jim, isn't it? You're right, you're right. It's wholesome. And I think once you've come across it, there's no coming back, really. There's no going back. It so does. It's so, do it's really beautiful stuff, actually. So I, I, everywhere I go and people say, you know, could you recommend anything? That is, that is my go-to because I sort of think in a way, if you've got that as a baseline, then it, it's like everything else kind of can, do you know what I mean? If that's your foundation, you're kind of sorted, really. Listen, Jackie, thanks so much for your time. Just really, I just wanted to say truly admire your courage i know you were talking earlier about how you would go to conferences and you had a feeling that only a few people might really hear you like truly hear you can't imagine how tough that's been and can't can't imagine how tough the road has been for you but the fact that you've persevered and helped so many people it's it's very inspiring and yes i myself are just delighted to have you on and no doubt this will inspire more people listening thanks a lot thank pleasure. you Thank you for the work you do. It's been really lovely Thank to so talk much. to you both.